Hola, mi gente. We're going to talk about the relationship of sexual identity in Latin America and how it comes into focus when we look and understand these issues through popular culture. Or rather, I'd like to also think about what the popular feels on these issues, what they say and why they take on perhaps new relevance the more and more I engage with these issues uh, intellectually but also personally. Change, unfortunately, is not an event, right? It's a process. And so these issues take on always new meaning even though they're the same issues that have been at the core of Latinidad around gender, appropriate behavior, the criminalization, and also, I guess, demonization of pleasure. And so in my work, this has been a running theme in my art as well. But I have to say, of all the topics I've discussed thus far, this one uh, perhaps is really at the intersection of not only my interest and, and passion, but also just my life, right? I identify as queer, but I, I think that because of the community that I belong to, I was able to actually get to this place. And let me explain and backtrack what I mean. So anthropology, although it is my discipline, right, in my training, perhaps has not been the most inclusive environment for me, at least not in my training. And so one of the things I was able to do in addition to getting my PhD uh, was a certificate in women's studies and a concentration in queer studies uh, granted by the Center for Gay and Lesbian Studies. And I remember when I actually finished this uh, certificate or this concentration, I wanted it to be mentioned in my graduation. Like, I was really proud of it. And they didn't know how to do it because they were like, I believe you're the first person who actually finished that concentration who was also in the anthropology department. And I thought that was very telling. But I remember one of my friends, and we took the courses together, he got his PhD in Luso-Brazilian literature. So we were Latin Americanists in that sense, but also we felt that this is our community and where we were able to have the most you know, impactful and meaningful conversations because they had broader implications that bled into our everyday lives, whether we were talking about issues around gender or, or issues related to, you know, the the church, right, and our Catholic culture. It, it, it was really a safe space, but also a creative one. One of the papers that I wrote for that class actually ended up winning the best paper on an LGBTQ issue in SUNY and CUNY, so the city and state universities of New York. And this is like my humble brag slash, yes, I'm giving this flex. It won this prize, but it, it revealed to me that this is like the issue that I am most passionate about, that I write from this place that also channels I think the best of my creativity and the paper actually was looking at the legalization of gay marriage and 
um, same-sex marriage and adoption in Argentina. So the queering of the family, then when you think about the family being the cornerstone of Argentine national identity, it was queering the nation. And so I looked at Maradona's and I queered his history, right, as problematic as it is, um, and what do I mean by that? Well, again, I put a lens that deviated from the traditional Manichaean way of understanding everyday life and, and the most important and intimate things of everyday life. There's a conflation also an understanding in the popular that if you're a woman, therefore you must marry a man, right, and procreate, and that becomes, you know, who you are and any deviation aside from being stigmatized and highly controversial, um, they also lead towards a path that is inherently queered, right? And so let me explain what I mean by that a little bit by looking at sexual identity in Latin America and the implications for people of the community or what does community mean in this context? For me, in my academic training, my community was in these courses most taught by my mentor, Matt Brim, who's at the College of Staten Island. I just want to give a great shout out to these type of communities that form organically out of need, but also, uh, um, I would say, a creative intellectual attraction to each other, right? Like, we know that these issues, we see them and live them in a particular way that even in a traditional anthropological setting, or um, my friend who was in literature and a few of my other, you know, cohort members that were, you know, in different disciplines, but we came together in understanding things like legal status, violence, and organizing through the lens of, you know, queer identity. And so our research inherently also fell along those lines and covered issues that perhaps did not appear as uh, an object of analysis or focus, right? And I think about this in terms of popular culture. One of my favorite films absolutely is called Plan B. It's from Argentina. It came after the economic crisis, but it's just a story of two dudes who fall in love, right? And like, that's just the best way to show it. But it wasn't about two dudes. It was about, and I, you know, kind of say this facetiously, but I mean, they were the quintessential, you know, macho guy that they, you know, out of just two people who share experiences fall in love. And the issue of them falling in love is the most purest thing, but the issue of them being able to feel comfortable in that. And I remember one of the scenes, the protagonist continues to throw up every time he thinks about it. But in that throwing up, you think it's out of disgust, but it almost became like a cleanse, right? And after that, uh, he came to terms with his identity, which sometimes if you don't have enough references out there available to you, you don't know that these identities are also natural, right? That they're not to be, you know, thought of as something bad, but it's society that makes it something bad. It's like, I also see this in terms of an intersection with disability studies, where in disability justice, we look at not the issue of the disability being the problem, but the ableism, right? In the same way, when I say the patriarchy is the problem, 
I, it, it, they're part of the same perverse systems, right? Like, you know, sexism, homophobia. And so, yeah, patriarchy in that way becomes a problem. But how does it manifest in real life, right? And so I have to put a few caveats, even though, you know, I acknowledge there is a tension between these different regions and the stereotypes and the different, you know, disciplines and and vantage points, I just want to say that even though I am a Latin Americanist, a lot of my experience also informs my work, but also experience on the ground. A lot of my uh, early work in public health was around um, AIDS, right? Because I became a safe sex educator in my community because the AIDS crisis was very much, you know, part of my coming of age. And so in Inherently, that was also attached to issues around LGBTQ rights and discrimination and bias. So that becomes early on part of my uh, lexicon, but also in knowing myself that I didn't neatly fit into the categories that I was supposed to as a good Latina or a good Colombian or a good whatever, right? And so the thing was queerness was represented or discussed, right, as something negative. And the AIDS crisis also fueled, you know, that type of rhetoric in the most, you know, problematic ways. But for me, I just want to say at the core of all of this, it comes down to the same old issues of my machismo, right, and Marianism, um, you know, the expectations of hyperfemininity with Marianism, right, women are to be pure, to, you know, reference even Alfonsina Storni, and you want me white, she's talking about, you know, the oppression of having to be submissive to your father, to your brother, to your spouse, and to God, and God is male, right, lack sex you're supposed to lack sexual desire too and so you know sex education really is nothing right it's it's a taboo topic but you know most women don't get that talk that you see on television in america right which it 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 creates a lot of also um handicaps right In, in public life or when you know you go out into the world and you're not necessarily informed that creates vulnerabilities but also again this whole virgin whore dichotomy it even exists in public popular culture right so think about you know women latina women by and large represented as either domesticas maids you know women in the background nannies or right hypersexualized and so and dangerous and as of late criminal because they're all those things and connected to the cartels, right? And connected to the drug trade. And then the machismo, right? That has existed and is almost in the DNA of how, you know, Latinidad is represented around masculinity in the popular, right? Physical strength, bold sexual advances towards women, great sexual prowess, self-confidence, bravery, but almost to the point of buffoonery, right? Like, it's really, you know, something that has a lot of implications when you think about it in the context of 
GLBT individuals because there is this duality of male homosexual activity, lesbians becoming anathema, so unlikely as to be invisible. There is also an importance of transsexual appearance, and there's a lot of confusion around the terms. Gay, they still use terms like transvestite, which is very stigmatized and not, you know, acceptable in in, in our language, right, in English, but it's still very much used in Spanish. In fact, also in Brazil, because I know there's this great ethnography and it's called travesti, and I've tried to kind of be a, an interlocutor on that conversation of how sometimes, you know, in the West and the um, LGBT movement in the West, like up north in the U.S., try to kind of impose like this is how we do it up in this community and therefore you know we fought you're supposed to follow suit but I remember you know even the term queer the Q is not a um, a, a, a word or um, a letter that is used much in our language but um, now you're seeing kind of the cultural adaptation of something that emerges more organically. Um, and it is a lot around LGBTQ issues today are around language also in Latin America. So it's interesting because now you see it's spelled C-U-I-R, which is something I want to adopt in my work as well. But there's only, I think, one uh, Center for Queer Studies in Buenos Aires and in, in the University of Buenos Aires where they're actually looking at also, you know, queer history and how do we also create uh, queer spaces in academia for us to think about these issues and, and around language and also laws. And I think that's great. That's progress. But again, you know, thinking of when we're talking about legal status and homosexuality or same-sex unions in Latin America, you know, there have been banning of homosexuality in some countries and that are still on the books, although we have sodomy laws here in the United States as well, still on the books, right? But legal protections are really important if you are part of a group that is at risk to violence, right? Police harassment. Civil partnerships are great, but you don't get the same type of protections as in the institution of marriage. And I'm not going to say, well, in Latin America, you know, how they uh, marriage becomes, you know, the legally binding document that governs all life here, too, in the United States. I mean, there are women who cannot get a divorce, even in the case of domestic violence, when they're pregnant, because they want the child to be born under the sanctity, right, under the legal protections of uh, of uh, marriage, right? So in Latin America, same thing, right? Like these legal protections also give you some type of an economic protection, which is important, especially, you know, in a culture that doesn't necessarily uh, welcome differences, right? Where status quo becomes almost like a way to survive. Because, I mean, I think about the dirty war in Latin America, right? In the southern cone throughout, but giving more of a specific example to Argentina, if you perceive to be queer, right? And I use it like if you wore a miniskirt, if you were a, a, a young woman, if you had long hair, if you were, you know, uh, uh, identified as male and you had long hair, if you were a hippie, if you wore a beard, you know, if you wore tight clothes, 
whatever stereotypical personification of you know the or an another gender then that became a a marker or or a branding to say you are subversive subversive to the state but also to society and to the church which became like again one in the same so it became a political project also to detain you know people who were perceived or suspected to be queer and so anything you know even rock and roll was uh, queer so imagine to be young to be different was to be also branded queer socially and that became a cause right for your detention or a justification for your torture or to violence and this happens still today we see it with so many hate crimes against you know the queer community by and large. When I was in Argentina working in the public advocate's office, aside from working specifically on legislation and policies for women, one of the things that we saw in the public advocate's office was a rise in bouncers, right? Kind of beating up anyone, particularly men and and trans women, uh, beating them up, right? Because they were trying to go into these spaces that, you know, are supposed to be these hyper-masculine, uh, you know, uh, and, and you know, perverted spaces because the idea and the justification, many of them was like, you know, well, what happens is that when they have uh, women, then, you know, are not going to be so open to, to, to male advances and that's going to hurt the business and I'm like that sounds so predatory and it really was underlining that but I remember these cases and they were like in all areas right of Buenos Aires so obviously you have more the gentrified and upscale and you know much more difficult to access spaces right like in neighborhoods like Recoleta or Palermo or even the heavily tourist places like Puerto Madero because the public advocate's office served all those places like we saw there was a pattern that cut across socioeconomic you know spaces it wasn't like it just happened in these you know upscale places or you know these bailantas which are a little bit more you know considered fringe those places actually had less incidences of violence and then we're like oh maybe it's just the people who don't want to disclose right because of the stigma but what we ended up finding out that these places were significantly more open welcomingly and safer actually for a lot of queer people so you had queer kids right who would go dancing to these poor neighborhoods because they felt safer because they were more at risk at these other places now this doesn't mean that it didn't happen in these spaces but these patterns were very indicative and obviously this violence it is related to machismo and you see it in public and private spaces but i want to think about how this operates and so you know in the anthropological tradition of ethnological research i want to give some kind of comparison 
sense so then also you can see the through lines thinking about guatemala because someone was telling me well in guatemala you actually don't have a lot of lgbt activism you have in neighboring countries more like honduras and you know they're like well why is that well i knew also that because of the role of pentecostalism in guatemala it's extra right for lack of a better way of putting in terms of the stigma right because underlying independently what faith people practice like the culture is you know predicated on catholic values because there was a time where you know the church and the state or latinidad these were all part of the same project but in guatemala there is no law against homosexuality but there's no protection either and again this is a great example of how okay something may not be criminal but if you're not protected right then you know whatever is considered uh scandalous for example that vague language you could be actually detained by the police in guatemala so it depending on how you know that individual is feeling you know about your behavior if they consider it scandalous and what could be considered scandalous just going through the list of some of the reasonings or justifications uh cross-dressing right or um guys with long hair right a group of men together could be scandalous right and so it's interesting because then you also have a rise in cases where the authorities have engaged in rape and theft and beatings and killings of uh homosexuals right and so in general you know a violent society like that homosexuality is used to dismiss or diminish acts of violence and so i have to think about the anthropologist mirna mack who was killed by a death squad in 1990 and then you have the united states nun diana ortiz a nun who was kidnapped and tortured by the army in guatemala in 1989 and in guatemala city the bishop juan Gerardi was murdered in 1998 the same rhetoric to justify these killings is used also to justify violence against homosexuals. And I think about, you know, we have so many famous Latin American uh, figures in the community that sometimes that aspect of their identity gets whitewashed. I mean, again, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. But Manuel Puig, one of my favorites, he wrote Kiss of a Spider Woman. He used to teach at NYU. He actually also is someone who put the the relationship of the repression against, you know, the youth and homosexuality under the same lens in these detention centers. I think, again, his work is now considered, you know, one of the best musicals, but it comes from this book. And then I think of Reynaldo Arenas from Cuba. And actually, if I think about how this was represented in in popular culture, there's that film where Javier Bardem actually plays Reynaldo Arenas. And in the uh, bowl, um, when Castro releases in Marialita that, you know, all the undesirables of Cuba, you know, he emptied out his prisons, you know, the mental health clinics, and, you know, and also they were gay people in put under that same bracket. So there's this scene where he has to prove his homosexuality to be let out of Cuba, right? Which 
it, it was the only way he was going to survive, especially under a regime that really uh, criminalized that to the extent, you know, that they this was a justification to leave, to be sent away, right? And so he has to do kind of like this walk. And so he overperforms, like exaggerates. And he had to practice it because it did not come natural to him. But he knew that was his ticket out. And I remember seeing it on screen and it, and it made it all the more real. I had read his work. I believe the film is called Antequia Nilcheska, but also Gabriela Mista, who's considered the educator of Latin America from Chile. I mean, Daniel Torres from Puerto Rico. I mean, the list is endless. Jamie Bailey, Peru, Fernando Vallejo, Colombia. But um, I always think it's interesting when in mainstream uh, conversations, their queer identity is kind of, you know, blotted out, muted. When, you know, if you listen to them, if you read their interviews, I mean, if you understand their work, then you understand it's integral, right? Like, you know, that's why I make it a point, independently of what people think a queer identity should look like, I always make it clear, you know, that is part of my identity for many reasons, um, you know, independently of like that being part of my activist tradition, that's been the community that, you know, I have felt most welcomed and seen and validated and connected to, right? Because of it, you know, I really do feel I finished my program. Shout out to the, to the Center for Gay and Lesbian Studies, which I think now is called the Center for Queer Studies. But again, also for giving me these opportunities to think about why is there no stonewall in Latin America, right? Like what has happened in, in places also where we are seeing advancing and how can we build on those movements? I mean, Mexico, uh, Mexico City was one of the first uh, places to actually recognize and, and offer protections, legal ones under the union of marriage to same-sex couple. But, you know, they had the Frente Homosexual de Acción Revolucionaria, so they did have their groups of organization that were advancing. So you had the first Pride March in Mexico in 1978. And in 2002, the Pride March had 30,000 participants. And in June 21, 2003, the march had 30 floats and 80,000 participants. And so you see progress there, right? Even a, a candidate for their political uh, candidate um, set up an office there, understanding that, you know, that's part of your constituency, right? Like this idea almost like not engaging with with a community that are, it's, 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 it, they matter, right? Like it's just bananas to me. And, um, then I look at Argentina in 1969, you had a Grupo Nuestro Mundo, which formed by communists who had been ejected from the party, and they bombarded media with gay liberation messages in 1969. So again, this is like in part of the dirty war and part of also the times of dictatorship where you had in 71, the Frente de Liberación Homosexual, and the group dissolved but also many members were exiled or killed during the Isabel Perón administration. And I think that is important because so many people look at Isabel Perón as, or, or you know, the Perón 
government as like uh, aspirational for the people, but you know, it was a particular type of people that they were protecting. But if you were gay, you know, if you were suspected of being in a same sex relationship, then you were basically expelled in one way or another uh, of the society. Yeah, I remember in Colombia, there was a time during the civil war in the height of it in the 1980s where the guerrillas were coming to the town and put a list on a tree, tape it, of like people that they were going to cleanse out of the town. And some of them were just because they were suspected of being gay. And I remember there was a time in my family where I had a cousin who was growing out his hair into a mullet. And everyone was like, watch out, because, you know, they could kill you because that is suspected of being gay. And one of the things, if you don't know about Colombian Spanish, is that one of the words that they use in their vernacular is, I can't even say it, it's M-A-R-I-C-A. And it's the word that we use to describe in Spanish also a ladybug, a marica. But it's said in a slur way, but people are like, even in the, it's the F word, it will be the equivalent. But it's interesting, obviously language is not neutral, but even when you see Colombian subtitles, like if you're watching a Colombian show and you read the subtitles, um, they'll say that means silly or like the, they won't say the literal translation because it's so ingrained in, in the vernacular. I find it so offensive and I'm Colombian and I have cousins on the rural coast who use it. But every time I think of one of my students who was uh, telling me how and she was in, in the midst of, of transitioning how she hears that and it's like a dagger and I'm like she is absolutely right like I always found it offensive but you know that thing that type of language weathers at your sense of self right your sense of health it chips away at your self-esteem and so you know when I think about why people migrate right queer migration it makes absolute sense um, but if we think regionally about Central America, Guatemala has no organizations, though gay rights groups were formed, again, like I said, in Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, during the 1980s when they also had, you know, civil war conflicts. But it's either interesting because then you look at a place like Belize and they have little violence against LGBTQ people, but neither does it have an open gay rights movement which I think sometimes people activate because these issues become very life or death, right? And so if you think about the situation of a lot of the country of origins, let's say of many of the LGBTQ refugees and migrants, why do people leave? When I worked actually in Spain, I worked and lived um, with a group of Colombian sex workers, but they were male sex workers, right? And many of them left because of the criminalization and persecution. I mean, it, their rights, their human rights were violated every day in these countries, and it, it was not looked at as a violation, but rather, you know, as a way to socially cleanse. And so there is a lack of legal protections and recognitions. There is social and labor exclusions, discrimination, stigmatization, 
homophobic, transphobic, interphobic violence and hate crimes, institutional violence. And so migration and applications that say for asylum on grounds of persecution based on sexual orientation, gender expression, identity, or sex characteristics is going up around the world, right? And so, again, it's because if you want to survive, sometimes you have to leave. In the same way, many people migrate because they can't survive. There is no economic opportunity. Uh, again, same thing. And I remember one of the guys that I used to work with, he came from a really, really, you know, economically secure family in Colombia, right? Like part of that, like old Colombian money, right? Very connected with the government, leaves to 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 live in Spain, right? And live, you know, free er, right? But still stigmatized and not subject to like great discrimination because he's looked at as a sudaka or, you know, like all these slurs that they have against immigrants and all the discrimination that they face. But that is still better and, and and freer than going back home where he is unable to live his most authentic self, right? And that sometimes to me, you know, is a result of institutional violence. And let us not forget that the family is also an institution. So culturally specific forms of recognition is interesting because in some non-Western countries, culturally specific recognition of sexual, gender, and bodily diversity is important, right? But you also have culturally specific identities and as such terminologies. And when I think about, you know, what happens even in the migration journey, um, the higher risk for physical and verbal violence during the journey, in reception, in the detention centers and camps. And then it's like, okay, you're still going to be subject then in public life because we have not one society where we don't see discrimination, harassment, and hate speech, homophobic, transphobic, and interphobic violence, and sexual abuse, institutional violence. And this is very problematic. And I think about this in terms of language also, right? We know that now there is a more mainstream use of the term Latinx, but language shapes how we think. Gender languages, like Spanish, facilitate sometimes even stereotypes, discrimination, and bias. And so gender-inclusive language is challenging in Spanish because its grammatical gender is pervasive and has no real neutral grammatical and standard usage. So think about this in terms of like what would Webster Dictionary say, but regarding gender-inclusive language, there is the RAI, the Royal Spanish Academy. And so they are the ones that kind of include what language changes or they capture it really because sometimes change happens before it gets captured and you need time in order to capture it. But all that to say, their response to a desire to have more gendered inclusive Spanish is that it is artificial and unnecessary because according to them, the masculine plural already encompasses all genders. And so their position Though linguistically correct, we could all agree is socially incorrect and really culturally inappropriate because it reaffirms cultural imperialism, right? Which is also a big issue. Latino is incredibly exclusionary, though, as a term. Think about it for women or for non-gender conforming people. But let's think about this in terms of some of these recent controversies. In Argentina and Spain, they have banned gender-inclusive terms. But I started watching the Kingdom 
on um, Netflix. And one of the things that really stood out was that the organizing in the film around college students, they were like, hola, migue. So they are using it, you know, in the vernacular, even though they banned it. But you can ban change, right? But the Connecticut state legislator here in the United States tried to ban the term Latinx on government documents, citing it as, and I quote, offensive. Latinx is part of a linguistic revolution to move beyond gender binaries, and it's a solution, although many say created by academics and online communities, I think it proposes a way to think about the Spanish-speaking world uh, a little bit different, to challenge the binary in the Spanish language. Now, it is a blanket term that tries to group us all under one colonized identity, but so does Latino, right? And so one of the... things that I remember from that class that I took in college in in intro to queer studies was the idea one of the students brought up that Latino is the queerest term that there is and I guess if I think about it under this grouping this blanket colonized identity I could see it, right? The Spanish language is linguistic imperialism because of the erasure of indigenous and African language, which gendered and and also ranged from genderless and to multi-gendered. And so the X claims to neutralize gender, but still for those with X imposed on them as part of their identity, it is a reminder that their bodies are still experiencing colonization invested in disciplining them to fit a standard gender identity, gender presentation, sexual orientation, and a particular performance. So X is a thingification, if we think about it also in terms of black identity, but also implicates a historical problem of anti-blackness in Latin American and Caribbean communities. The X includes indigenous identities, but also simultaneously others them. So the use of Latin X among English speakers implicitly separates persons of Latin American descent into monolingual Spanish speakers and those born in the U.S. primarily speaking English. So this de facto division contradicts assertions that Latin X denotes inclusivity, a term to qualify as inclusive, must give equitable weight to vastly diverse experiences and knowledge. And so I am more about the Latine at this point, but again, I could change. But I think the idea is to think about ways in which we could culturally optimize our speech to be more gender inclusive. We can avoid the use of certain expressions by and large that excludes particular groups of people. But Latine emerges actually from the community in the Spanish-speaking world. So Spanish already uses an A for gender-neutral words such as estudiante, right, or student, and it eliminates the gender binary in its singular and plural form. Latin A is not confined also to an elite English-speaking population within the U.S. A should not eliminate the existing O and the A. Instead, it is a grammatically acceptable addition, right, to the Spanish language. Latine, in that way, accounts for individuals and communities across socioeconomic status and citizenship, education, gender identity, age groups, and nations, while also honoring the Spanish language. So I want to end thinking about this relationship of testimony 
at least as we see it within um, female women identify Latina mujerismo testimonies, which is actually what my book with Amaralis Estela centers around, right? Like this multitude, this diverse range of voices that harmonize and are lifted in choir to speak to what it means to identify as women. And our definition is inclusive of anyone and everyone who identifies as woman. And so there is also a history of queer testimonials. And I, this has been a question for me of why is this intersection resonating? And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there is um, a lot of reasons why, even though you're able to travel and move, um, there is this need to also fit in in a particular category even you know through movement if that makes sense and I think about this um, I guess to bring up a conclusion from cultures of the Puerto Rican queer diaspora queer Rican artists have documented and transformed an immigrant experience characterized by racism poverty linguistic difficulties and homophobia but also characterized by personal resiliency and cultural creativity. Puerto Ricans may have U.S. citizenship, but that doesn't mean that their integration to U.S. society has been easy, particularly for queer LGBTQ individuals. So if we think of testimonio, it's a genre of literature that retells historical events using literary elements such as dialogue, poetry, and metaphors from eyewitness perspectives. Why did the author choose to use a testimonial? That is something I always think about instead, let's say, of a memoir. And a lot of it, it's about putting your place, your sense of self on the record, that you existed, right? And so for me, when I think of places where that is honored, I think about a place like our class where many of you in your own writings, in your own thoughts, are putting so much on the record that adds value. And it creates also kind of a harmony, right? Where we all together are able to examine the places, events, and people that create an influence and give us a sense of belonging and so I think about this in terms of our work and our class and I'm glad that this conversation happened because so much of what we understand is, is considered you know as a standard that light that's cast on it dims another space and so for me it's about censoring the experiences of queer lives and thoughts and and experiences and that's part of my work i think overall in life